Welcome back. In this episode, I spoke with Professor Shauna Darling. She's a speech and communications professor. Here's our conversation. Well, um, I have been listening to your podcast. I just want you to know that what you're doing is awesome. Thank you. Uh, seriously, um, I, I, as I know you just said don't talk about work, but I will just say really quickly that listening to your podcast, it just reminds me how many amazing people we work with. Absolutely. I mean, listen to these things these people do. You know, they start teaching when they're high school students or they're in clubs and everything else. Um, it's pretty impressive. I don't know. It makes me feel like I have uh, imposter syndrome or something. I'm like, okay. Um, so anyway, I just wanted you to know that I think it's really amazing. Um, I'm a mom. My twin sons are sleeping right now. They just turned 13 a couple of weeks ago. So that's obviously a big part of my life is, um, you know, my kids and then my students and, uh, and my cats. I'm a, I'm a cat lady. How many cats do you have? Two cats, their brother and sister. Uh, they're rescues from Peggy Adams, and I love them very much. And my children are begging me for a third cat. And I've are, are they that. responsible for taking care of the cats? No. Would they, they never do they say the that box. they're going to be responsible for the cat, and as a result, they want a third one? I think they just want to cuddle with the cat <laughs> and then know that I will change the litter box. Fair enough. Mommy's uh, prerogative, I guess. Yeah. So um, I just bought a house. Oh, congratulations. Uh, first house. Yep. It, so I've just been through the most stressful couple of months of my entire life. Um, <clears throat> that's been rough, but uh, my sons go to mid, uh, Jupiter Middle School mm-hmm. and I lived in West Palm and I was actually driving them to Jupiter every day and wow, I teach in that's, gardens. That's a bit of a trick. Yeah. And so heading into eighth grade this year, their concern was, well, they, they won't be able to go to the high school that all their friends attend. And there's no way I could ever afford to live in Jupiter um, unless I moved into like the five houses that were available. Oh, there's one now. This, this is Noelle. Hi, say hi. Um, so I went for it. I found a townhouse that I could afford. That's literally right. In, it's within spitting distance of Jupiter High School, so that my sons could go to the high school they want to go to. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I bought my children a house for their thirteenth birthday. So I'm just coming off of that sort of high and that stress. So that's an exciting thing in my life, I guess. I'm so very thankful that my stepdaughters don't listen to this. That you know, they maybe heard the first episode and they said, "Yeah, I, I, we don't care about your coworkers." Yeah, you know, if you're talking about Taylor Swift or I, I don't know whoever the current heartthrob is, uh, <clears throat> that might have been more pleasant. But I am so very happy that that's something that I would have never been able to live down. Well, that person on your podcast bought her sons a house, and you complain about other things. So, sorry that well, my I'm, brain went there. I told them even on my deathbed, that's literally the last thing I'm going to say to them. <laughs> Remember that time I bought you a house? I've said it probably 87 times in the past week. <laughs> it's a great way to guilt them into doing chores, I think. 
Oh, absolutely. The dishes have never been uh, cleaner. So I, I'm excited about that, but it's been rough juggling for live classes, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and moving it's, it's been interesting. So my students have been on this whole journey with me, you know, with me while I'm surrounded by boxes and I know we're not supposed to talk about work, but I don't know how not to talk about work. Um, I guess I could talk about the fact that I am not like any of my colleagues. Okay. That, that's excellent. That's an excellent segue. How are you unlike them? I, you know, when I listen to their stories and I read about the things that they've published and these amazing projects, I, I am just a chick from a single parent household. I actually dropped out of high school um, okay. in, in high school. Um, I was, I was always a mediocre student. I never really, it was social. I think really reflecting back on my life, it's funny that I'm a speech teacher because I think I always suffered from social anxiety. Mm -hmm. I never got along with other kids my age. I always felt uncomfortable and very scared and unsure of other kids. I mean, I didn't even last through preschool five days. I begged my my mother and my stepfather, please don't ever send me to that place again. And I'd rather just sit secluded in my house and watch cartoons than to hang out with other kids. So I was always just a mediocre student. I I just sort of got through. I don't think I ever did homework. Uh, I've never been in a club. You know, I hear my colleagues are like, oh, I started this amazing club on diversity and in public relations. I'm like, I've never even been in a club. I never even thought about being in a club. Um, just different in that way. Uh, my parents, I, my parents were, uh, my dad, 26 years old, he was a bouncer at a nightclub. Mm-hmm. And my mom was trying to get in underage. And, and here I am. They were never married um, to each other. And, uh, you know, I was just a really shy introverted kid and I just barely got by. I mean, super average. I think I was the first fourth grader to ever come home with four D's on a report card. That's actually, that's true. Um, so it's really funny that, and then I was always put in honors classes. I never knew why I always thought it was a mistake or, and I just barely ever scraped by, um, and my mom, she, you know, she had a failed marriage and we moved around a lot. So I actually went to a different school every year from wow. sixth grade to college every single year, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th, every year, a new school. So when you take this sort of like already sort of apprehensive kid and no one knew I was apprehensive. It never, I never came off that way, but I sort of always sort of suffered uh, you know, privately with that. And then to be the new kid at every single school, it was just really hard for me. So I certainly wasn't going to venture off into joining clubs and doing all these amazing things that, you know, the typical, I guess, academician does. And, um, in 10th grade, I actually moved in with my dad. So I was living with my dad, single dad, and I went to a new school again And I actually sustained a really bad knee injury and I didn't have health insurance because we were really poor. I think he was actually out of work. And so I couldn't get the help that I needed. And so I was really sort of like incapacitated. So I actually had to drop out of school. Um, 
and I missed an entire six months of school. We didn't really know what I was going to do. And I didn't really, you know, my parents, my mom, she got her GED in the ninth grade. My dad went to one semester of college on a football scholarship and couldn't afford books. So he dropped out. So I never had that pressure from my family Mm -hmm. to pursue education. So it's all really kind of strange. You know, my parents were bartenders. They didn't go to school and I dropped out of school. And I think that probably what turned things around, but I was, you know, about high school, I started realizing that I could be a really good student and that I was actually good at it, you know, but I still never cared enough to do. I just did what I had to do to get by. And after I dropped out, I realized, okay, I'm going to have to do something. Never really thought about college as a a necessity. Uh, Of course, this is the 90s, very different time. And I wound up at North Tech Education Center. I don't know if you're familiar. I don't know if they still have North Tech or some variation, but it's basically you can go to technical school with adults. Mm -hmm. I'm Um, thinking I I used to, I think, drive by there at some point of time. uh, I think there's Atlantic Tech Institute. In Riviera Beach. Oh, this is in somewhere in Coral Springs, Tamarack area. Um, but I, I, I know the, the type of institution. Similar that, idea. Sure. Right. And I could go to, you know, a vocation school during the day. And then in the afternoon, they had a separate high school program. Mm-hmm. So what most, oh, this is something most people don't know. I actually have an art background since I was a kid. I wanted to be an animator or, you know, something in art. And my mom was an an art major. Mm-hmm. And I actually used to go to classes with her at Palm Beach Junior College in the 80s. Uh, I even had a little uh, Palm Beach Junior College sweatshirt and she would take me to Lake Worth campus and we would attend uh, art classes together. So that's wow. kind of ironic thinking back, but she never finished, you know, and she always had me at uh, the Armory. Have you ever heard of the Armory in West Palm? No. The Art Center. Anyways, I used to go to like summer camp there. So I always loved art, especially as like a sort of introverted kid. So North Tech Vocational School had a commercial art program where I could go and learn commercial and graphic art uh, with adults. And so that's that's what saved, I guess, my entire education. I, I enrolled there and I, it was really cool. I got to sit with adults and at a drafting table for five or six hours a day, which was perfect for me. And then I was able to finish up high school at my own pace, just on the computer like kids are doing now. And I went from being six months behind to actually graduating three months earlier than my class. Wow. I got a certificate in commercial art. I was actually able to do a couple freelance jobs on the side. Um, I made a brochure for my dentist because he had like a bed and breakfast on the side. And I got a thousand dollars worth of um, dental work and stuff. I mean, that's pretty cool. I said, yeah. Hey, 
when you have a single dad and you're poor and you, you know, so that was pretty cool. I was able to sort of side hustle my way sure. through some important times. And, um, you know, then I, truth be told, I, my boyfriend was in college and mm-hmm. went to UNF. And so UNF was the only college I applied to because my boyfriend went there. That's the truth. Fair and enough. so I applied and I got in and I moved to Jacksonville, hated every minute of it. We broke up three days after I got there. And that's how I wound up in college and ultimately being on the path to becoming a professor. Pretty weird, huh? Well, there's certainly an intersection in that your story is is far more interesting than you gave it credit for. I, I thought that you know, at least from how you started, that it was going to be this vanilla, I went to high school, then I went to college, and now I'm a professor. But there's far more character to it than I I think what you gave yourself credit for. So I'm curious, the decision to go to college, was that precipitated? Or was there a guiding force outside of some internal monologue? Because you mentioned that there wasn't any pressure from your parents, uncle, aunts, siblings, members in the community, or was it just a a desire to, I guess, to go to college? I think it was probably negative motivation in that, um, in reality, it's far less vanilla than that. I moved out of my mom's house because um, she developed severe alcoholism, and that's Mm -hmm. why I moved in with my dad. Um, So I think under the circumstance, most people just thought that I'd be a Denny's waitress, you know, that I would just barely get by in life. And I think it was my really strong desire to prove people wrong that I could do something meaningful, even though they never said they thought I would never do anything. They certainly never said that they they thought I could do something. Sure. You know, which now that I'm thinking about it, we And I know I'm not supposed to talk about work, but it's so relevant because I do teach speech. And one of the fundamental principles of communication we talk about is obviously the influence, you know, how we're communicated to become such a part of your your identity. Mm -hmm. So now that I think about it, it's so interesting how, you know, on a subconscious level, sort of that lack of push. I internalized this notion that no one really believed that I would do anything you know, important. So um, I don't know. I don't know if I'm articulating it right. It's a little early, but. So a question you can choose to decline to answer or answer a different version of the question. How, how does that affect or has that affected uh, how you guide your, your twin sons? So do you, do you overcompensate by saying I'm going to be super forceful and, you know, that this is a perfectly laid out path or do you say, well, look at how I turned out. Maybe I I shouldn't be motivated. So where on the spectrum are are you, if you wish to discuss it? I am. Oh no, that's, that's, (laughs) it's something I struggle with all the time. I have a conversation with one of my aunts really regularly Um, I overcompensate to a very large degree and it's something that I'm working on. And I really try, I'm a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. I think that, I mean, I'm a very type A perfectionist. And I think, again, it's sort of those 
underlying feelings of being inadequate as a younger person that has sort of, you know, manifested in this serious sense of uh, perfectionism. And I have to stop myself from imposing that on my children. And it's, it's hard. I mean, parenting is so hard. You said you have stepchildren. I don't know if you have biological, you know, but same thing. Parenting is just so difficult and I have to catch myself a lot. And my sons um, are actually overachievers. I mean, beyond what I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a math professor, right? I am. So maybe you can appreciate that. Um, so this year, eighth grade, they're going to be in geometry honors. So oh. they're actually two years ahead. Cool. In seventh grade, they had algebra one honors and they've already had, they already have high school credit. Uh, Keep so, pushing them. Keep pushing them. Well, (laughs) at least mathematically, I I, I find that having tutored a few reasonably bright, I don't know what the adequate phrasing is there, uh, having tutored some reasonably bright and interested middle schoolers uh, that, you know, didn't just have an interest in math, but physics as well and computer science. And they, they just had this thirst for knowledge. And oftentimes what I noticed with their parents was that, you know, once you get into high school, they're like, oh, no, 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 we don't want to put so much pressure. And it wasn't that they were being draconian and, you know, slave drivers, that, that kind of experience. It was more so, oh, you want to do this? Okay, we'll make it happen. Oh, you want to go to chess camp or something? Okay, well, well, we don't have time, but we'll make time to make that happen. And then that desire either just wanes because they think, oh, my kid's always tired or, you know, they they have a lot on their plate. Maybe they should just sit out and, I don't know, twiddle their thumbs or something. And because that fire was not being stoked, they just kind of became lackadaisical and complacent and just said, eh, I, I don't feel like doing anything anymore. Whereas, so... Again, I don't have personal experience with it with the girls, but um, yeah, I would say that if they're taking geometry honors in eighth grade, maybe not force them to take, keep taking math, but right. encourage them to say, well, why would you want to take a year off from math? And that that's a, that's a fight that I lost with one of the girls. And I'm hoping the other one wants to be a mathematician. So I, I don't know what's wrong with her. Um, but I have time to, I have time to convince her not to go down that path, but, uh, okay. Back, back to you. Sorry. Well, one of my sons wants to work at GameStop. So what is that? (laughs) I I think that that might be a a function of being 13 and, and, and wanting to be around things that you, you want to engage with. Oh, it's the video gaming, but you know, I do, like I said, I, I acknowledge it. I guess that's mm-hmm. step number one. I'm not in denial that I do have those tendencies and propensity to really push them. But at the same time, they'll wake up at 6.30 in the morning on a test day to study. So they, you know, I don't tell them to do that. They say, mom, please wake me up at 6.30 so I have time to study. So I do try to back off a little bit. But last semester, one of my sons got a C in civics. I'm like, how do you get a C in civics? 
all we do is talk politics all day, every day in this house. Like it, it should just be automatic. So I realized that I probably shouldn't be on top of them about a C. So I try to refrain and remember that I was a fourth grader with four Ds, you know, so it's hard. It's a constant struggle. But like you said, you know, some kids, if if I give them too much leeway and freedom, they may, that, that spark may fizzle. And I certainly don't want that either. Parenting is just so difficult. There's, I, I find that there's no... No matter what I do, there's never it, it's never the right choice. So my, my decisions always boil down to I did that. I should have done the other thing that I thought was a terrible idea. And I think the outcome would have been better. But maybe in the short term, hopefully in the long term, I'm making the right choices. But who knows? I'll find out in 20 years. Well, here's what's cool is, I mean, for me at least. So now because they're in this, you know, gifted program and they're taking all these advanced courses, so are their friends, Mm -hmm. right? There's these same cluster of friends that are moving in and out of these same classes. So now the social pressure has taken over and I can take a step back. Seriously, I know that sounds terrible, but that's like, they get their schedules. They just got their schedules on the 12th. Immediately, all the boys are all on the uh, Discord, the mm-hmm. live video game chat or whatever, and they're all posting screenshots of their schedules, and they judge each other, right? <laughs> and it's like their one friend that's in, like, regular math, they're like, oh, stupid, <laughs> right? And, and again, I know that sounds terrible, but I don't have to push them quite as hard because in order to fit in with their overachieving friends... They, they have to rise up to the challenge. Sure. Yeah. Do you share uh, your academic struggles in fourth grade with uh, your sons? I do. And it's not just fourth grade. I mean, I was, I was actually admitted to graduate school conditionally mm-hmm. because I couldn't do well on the GRE. Okay. I mean, I probably could have. I took it twice. But I never studied for anything. I didn't study for the, I mean, literally the night before I took my SATs, I was out with my friends till like one o'clock in the morning. And I was like, oh, I got this test I have to go take tomorrow. Um, so I did not do well. And I applied anyways. And I got in on my reputation and with references from professors. This is when I, um, I transferred uh, to FAU. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how I got in. So. That backfired on me when I told one of my sons when he was being really hard on himself. I told him the story about how I didn't do well on my GRE. I didn't even get the required minimum. And then I took it again. And then the score went up 40 points, but I still didn't meet the requirement. And I that didn't stop me. And I thought it was this amazing story that was going to have this impact now, if he gets really angry with me, he just says, well, I don't, what are you talking about? You can't even pass a GRE. <laughs> so he kind of throws it back in my face. <laughs> and I'm like, I really, really wish I would have never told him that. Again, I, unintended consequences. I, I would have never thought that that's how mm-hmm. I, I guess it would be used. 
against you, perhaps. I, I don't know. Yeah, well, mom's an idiot. What is she now? All right. So uh, UNF, FAU, and then mm-hmm. how, how was, I guess, did you have more fun in Boca than Jacksonville or was it more pleasant? I'm just a South Florida girl. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was born and raised in 45th Street. I was born in St. Mary's Hospital. My children were born in St. Mary's Hospital. And so moving to Jacksonville, especially the late 90s. So, I mean, already when I, I went there in 98, when I moved there, I already felt like Jacksonville, just culturally, as far as the diversity, I felt like everything was 10, 20 years behind. And remember, I said that I never really got along with other kids my age, or I'd always have a very, very small, but I'm still best friends with my best friend from eighth grade, put it that way. Um, so when I went to Jacksonville, it was a total culture shock being in North Florida and being raised the way I was with a single dad, uh, he, he was actually, this is true. He was bartending at a strip club when I went to, so here I am, this girl from South Florida who barely got through high school, whatever. And now here I am, I'm in college. And, you know, my dorm mate, my first college roommate was this like corn fed, homegrown, you know, no, I'm serious. Like daddy owned a car dealership. She's from some small town in you know central Florida that I'd never heard of. Her mom and stepdad had just had a baby. Um, her mom looked like Sarah Palin. It was all very freaky. Uh, her, her stepfather put horseshoes on horses. I mean, it, she was a cheerleader. She was a virgin cheerleader. We could not be more different. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally our answering machine was something like, you've reached Shauna and so-and-so Shauna's out walking the streets and so-and-so is milking the cows. And we used to kind of play it up on these differences, but it really seemed like all the kids were like that. They were just different from me. You know, I had no rules when I was in high school because it was just me and my dad, he worked nights and I was very independent. I worked from the moment I had to, I had to work under the circumstance, you know, making $4 an hour at the Palm Beach Mall when I was a teenager in high school. And so not having a curfew and never having rules, I'd already experienced everything that the average college student is pining to experience. So when I got to college, I was ready to get serious. Mm -hmm. Like I was already done with all that stuff. And so I just these naive kids who had never been around diversity. They were from these small towns, you know, the new Samaritans and Daytona and all these neighboring places. They were just so different from me. And I just, it never really felt right. And I don't know what the question was. I was going somewhere with this. Oh, so you're asking me if I didn't enjoy it. Um, So I just never fit in. I always have this general sense. I never fit in. And my first year, I didn't have a car. So that was really tough having to struggle and and rely on other people, meeting other people to get around. It was just really difficult for me to be in this really just, I don't know, the kids there, kids, my 
they were really inconsiderate. They just lacked basic consideration for other people. They seemed very immature for me. And it, I just didn't get along with them. I never fit in. And I think that really weighed on me. I think I was actually depressed. I think I actually, in retrospect, once I came home, I was there two years. I got my AA and then came home. And afterwards, about a year later, when I reflected upon that experience, I thought, I said, oh my God, I think I was depressed for the first time in my life. I think I really was and didn't even know it because I just couldn't fit in. I just couldn't. So then I moved, to, I transferred to FAU and I finished up there and being at home and just driving, that made all the difference. You know, I missed my dad, I missed my friends, and I just felt more comfortable at home, again, being the introverted person that I was. And it just felt really good to be at home and have that sort of place to land. When you're in a strange place where it seems like nobody is anything like you, and you have to go and live in that place 24 hours a day, it's like there's no escaping it. But being able to go to you know, go home after classes and decompress and sort of have a, a better balanced life. It just, it turned things around. And I started to realize that I was actually a really good student. I was, it was actually really easy to be a good student. And so I finished up at FAU and then I took two years off. I took two years off and I was tending bars, making so much money, tending bar and I was sleeping in and going to the beach every day. And then I realized that that certainly wasn't sustainable. So that's when I was like, well, I guess I'll go to graduate school. And that's, that's what happened. So I've asked this question of people that have uh, lived, I'd like to say fulfilling lives, not to say that yours is over by any means. Uh, you said that, you know, all the things that the college students pine for, you had already visited them in high school or when you were younger or before you went to college. I'd like to think that at some point of time, those mistakes that people make of staying out too late and not studying for a test, once those are out of your system, you kind of get on the straight and narrow. And I, I know I'm using too many colloquialisms here, but uh, I don't know if that makes sense, that you, you you make those choices early on and then you start making better choices because you learn that actions or inactions have consequences. If you don't do the things you need to, then you, the piper must be paid at some point right. of time. Do you think that, you know, um, the, 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 the daughter of the car salesman or whatever it was, your your college roommate, do you think that not her specifically, but someone like her who hasn't had the same life experiences as you can get to the same place as you without going through them herself or themselves. Absolutely. I, I realized that my upbringing and the fact that I had to mature in different ways much faster than the average person is it's sort of dysfunctional. Like I came from a dysfunctional background, mm -hmm. whereas teenagers, when they go to college, that should be the first time that they're experiencing a lot of things. So in reality, I was the one who was, you know, 
I don't know what the word is, but you, you know what I'm trying to say. Sure. Like, um, but I didn't realize at the time I was just utterly frustrated with how they were. I thought they were all idiots, to be honest with you. I know that sounds terrible, but that's how I felt at the time. And again, I, you know, some of it was probably self-preservation because I just was so uncomfortable all the time knowing that I didn't fit in. I mean, literally my, my roommate called me ghetto. So, because I listened to like rap, um, actually, that's actually true. It was actually, it was a really, my, it was a popular song. It was like Maya. I don't know what your hip hop sure. of the nineties, you know, Maya, you know, ghetto superstar, whatever that song with ODB, it was like a pop song, right? We're not talking gangster rap. It was like a pop song and it was on, you know, like the MTV countdown or something while I was getting ready for class and I'm singing it and. And my roommate's like, oh my God, you're so ghetto. Because mind you, every night she used to put on Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> no, I swear to God. I was I, like, I, I'm not please. laughing at the at the choice of, of music, but the, the chasm between Maya and Sarah McLaughlin. No, I is so huge. A, we shared a 12 by 14 dorm room, okay, where the bathroom is out in the hallway, like a legit freshman dorm. And every night she had this routine where she had to warm up her like Jersey blankets, like her Jersey knit blankets. And, and she had this big, obnoxious, flowery comforter. And I'll never, I'll, I remember that because my comforter was like from the clearance shelf at Target. And it was like the ugliest green plaid thing that I could afford. And she had like this beautiful, like fluffy thing. And every night she would warm it up. She'd put on her, put her perfectly matching pajamas and she'd tuck herself in. And then she'd reach over and hit play on her little Sony um, CD player. And in the arms of an, I was like, I can't go to sleep to this every night, please. Um, so she actually called me ghetto and she meant it. She's like, God, you're so ghetto. And I think, so again, I think that's sort of for me thinking about like South Florida, North Florida, and how just the differences in our upbringings. And it, it, I, I carried that with me, but the funny thing is, is that and I don't know if you'll take, I don't know if you're familiar with Trick Daddy Dollar. I am. Okay, so I was like, oh, you think that's ghetto? <laughs> okay. So the next day, I actually invited a couple of the black girls from down the hall for a dance party, and I, I blared my Trick Daddy CD. Um, so you know, I was maybe a little passive aggressive, but. You know, I just never fit in there. I don't know. Maybe I don't fit in anywhere, but I definitely didn't fit in at UNF in Jacksonville. So two two questions. One, what would you say to a student who reminds you of yourself? You walk into class, you see this young person, yeah, or old or older. Uh, you, You see someone who's similarly perhaps reserved and... You know, you, you can point out pretty quickly uh, that this person, you know, is trying to make them as small as possible. They, they just don't feel comfortable out in a social setting or in, in a classroom environment. What, what do you say anything to that person or what would you say if you say something? I do. I actually I've actually said to a student, you remind me so much of myself. Mm-hmm. 
And I am harder on those students than anyone else. The student who comes to me, oh, I work nights. I live, this is what I say to them, boo hoo hoo, cry me a river. And I know that sounds terrible, but I'm actually harder. The, the students with potential, there's nothing worse than a student with potential that's, you know, potentially, you know, wasting it away mm-hmm. with their excuses. And so when I identify somebody who has this great potential, but just isn't putting forth effort or somebody who has a certain arrogance that can't be told anything. That reminds me of me too, because again, I think that that was a defense mechanism that I had like, Oh, you can't tell me anything. Um, so I do, I tell students that I tell students, you know, sometimes I get a little personal. Um, it really depends on the situation, but I I'm honest with students all the way around you know, teaching speech, there's obviously so much conversation about anxiety because of speaking apprehension and sort of, you know, addressing these underlying issues that might, you know, impact confidence and so on. So I have very honest conversations with them. And when I recognize that they're like me, I tell them, you have amazing potential. Please keep going. No more excuses. You know, it it varies, but I do I always identify them. I do always call them out and I give them some form of tough love, I suppose. What would you say, or if anything, uh, to a student that reminds you of your roommate? Have a, it was a pleasure having you this semester. Take care. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know... I think I have so much tolerance. It's not that I'm intolerant to people. I mean, I've obviously learned so much in, you know, over 20 years, particularly understand. And I literally, now I turn around and I teach it. I literally teach, you know, taught looking at intercultural communication and how our co-cultures, race, religion, ethnicity, uh, gender, and all of these things really shape our communication style, which is shaped by our perception. And now that I am older and wiser, I've got nothing for love, nothing but love, but for someone like my roommate, right? I realized that she, her upbringing, like I said, there's a certain amount of real dysfunction in being raised the way I was. And I say, oh, well, you know, my mom was an alcoholic and her boyfriend was a total piece of crap. And so I had to move out. And, you know, my dad worked at a strip club and that's how he got me through college. He'd send me a hundred bucks every week from the stripper money. Um, That probably sounds a little strange to people. So in retrospect, um, sort of her naivety, again, as I think is on par with what you know, a 19 or 20 year old, you know, mentality should be. So I'm far more tolerant and understanding of a student like my roommate. And I hope that, I mean, if they're overtly negative or say something, you know, offensive in class. And I'm sure you've experienced, I don't know in math, how much conversation and debate really occurs, but you know, if someone, any student said something terribly offensive, I would halt them and we would have a conversation. But I think that 
because we talk about intercultural communication so frequently, there are students like my roommate who say, well, what about this? And why is it an all lives matter? Why is it black lives matter? And we do get to have those hard conversations. And I have found that while difficult to navigate those controversial topics, I have set a tone in the classroom of equal respect for everybody on the spectrum, from a kid like me who matured really quickly, was a caretaker of siblings or maybe a caretaker of a parent and so on, all the way to the very sheltered student like my roommate. So I don't know if I answered your question. I think that there's room for everybody and, and that's part of the growth that I've done as a, as a person and recognizing um, how important it is to understand where people are coming from and that's where she was coming from. I find it very difficult to, to, to borrow your phrase, uh, tolerant towards opinions, ideas, thoughts that, how do I say this, um, lack foundation in science or logic. I, I find it very difficult to not roll my eyes or dismiss people that say things like take, take any controversial thing that has no basis. In fact, um, vaccines cause autism. I, I check out immediately. The, the moment you say that I, I, the conversation in my head is over. I'm there physically. I'm there out of politeness, but I don't know how to stay engaged because in my head, I don't think anymore especially with and maybe it's a function of everything that's going on around the world uh that I, I i think i have lost or people have lost the ability to have a meaningful conversation where maybe you can say okay i'm at zero you're at 10 after having a reasonable conversation maybe i move to a one and maybe you move to a nine and that in my head would be a successful conversation I have given up on that. If you're at a 10, I'm not even going to bother. And I know that that's a character flaw. How do you encourage people moving from zero to one and from 10 to nine in your class as, you know, give me something tangible that I can use in my own life to, to be better. Again. Okay. So I can't stress this. The whole co-culture conversation is the most neutral way to explain. So I literally talk to them about our intercultural differences and how it shapes our perception. Mm -hmm. And I tell them that each of us has this, you, no one else has lived your experience. So I think right there, this idea that each and every one of us, we have no choice about our life experience as far as, you know, through adolescence and how we were talked to and, and the race we are and how we grew up and all these things. So I think that takes the onus off of them. You know what I mean? A little sure. bit. So we can't blame our neighbor for being this race or this religion or, or whatever. So I think that that opens their minds up to that, you know, neutrality right there. And then I, you know, I show them the election map to try to get them to understand how different places, and I talk to them about demographics. And I actually use my example living in Jacksonville. So a lot of, I, I, I use diversity for the basis of a lot of these arguments. And I show them our census from West Palm Beach 
and they see how much greater the diversity is here than say, you know, Boise, Idaho. And I think they start to understand and make the connections while prejudice and it cannot be excused or tolerated, right? But when they recognize that this lack of diversity where some people are coming from it certainly influences the lens through which they see. And then if you take the media representation of particular groups of people and this, this perpetuation of certain stereotypes, and you sprinkle that on top of the fact that many people in the middle of the country have never, you know, interacted with people of different cultures. When I say different cultures, I mean different political philosophies. Sure. I mean, you know, what education levels and so on. I think that when I put it in 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 that light, it's like hit or miss. Any one of us could have been any one of these other people, right? I could be you. You could be me. I could be, you know, living in 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 Albania. I think that once I try to make it sort of seem neutral, like it's the luck of the draw, this is how we're raised, this is how we're communicated to, this is where we come from. I think that that makes it a little bit easier to start having the, the more difficult conversations and understand where another person is coming from. And I, I don't promote tolerance of ignorance. Now, again, there's a, a, for me, in my opinion, there's a, a very big difference between ignorance and prejudice, mm -hmm. right? I mean, ignorance is simply not knowing, right? So we have this conversation about, you know, what it is to be ignorant. Now, hate, prejudice, racism, homophobia, go down the line, it can never be tolerated. But when someone is simply ignorant, you know, like my roommate, who... I absolutely don't believe was a hateful person. She was Christian and, and the whole, and, and, you know, and, you know, fundamentally Christian and, sure. and I had those ideals and so on. You know, when she said I was ghetto, she just meant that where she came from, there was nothing but white people listening to country music and Sarah McLaughlin. And so we had to sort of, I had to really learn and understand that that's, you know, where, I don't know. I don't not, I don't excuse people, but I think it's important. There's just so much division. I'm so disgusted and saddened by all the division among people, even, I mean, people are, never mind unfriending, people are like unfamilying each other. Um, so I think we just, that's what I do. That's my approach is like strip it down. What makes someone uniquely, uh, you know, an individual, what shapes their perception and how can we understand why someone else would view the world the way that they do? I think we need to like get back to basics on that. So but, how, sorry. No, but that's not to say that I don't get thoroughly annoyed and agitated. Like you said, when people say idiotic things, because I certainly do. So from that comes the, the question, how, what's your radar or what's the meter to differentiate between someone who's ignorant versus someone who's prejudiced and playing ignorant? Or maybe they're just being outright, pre well, if someone is being out, outright hateful, then that, that's easy to spot. You know, you're, right. you're, you're being hateful. That's easy. Uh, in, in, for instance, to take your roommate as an example, 
At what stage do you realize that maybe at that moment, not so, because you played Trick Daddy and at a dance party and <laughs> but late la- forget that day. I, I was a whim. That was like a whim <laughs> for me. Uh, but uh, you 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 move on, time passes, you get older and wiser. At what stage or how do you determine that in her innocence she was ignorant, but someone else in a similar situation is prejudiced? So ha- what distinguishing characteristics do you have or is it just a gut feeling? I think it's a gut feeling. So do you think, think? I don't know. I'm, I'm asking questions. I'm trying to figure out how to differentiate between people. I should be, uh, well, I I guess this is where I was going with the question. If someone doesn't know any better, I have hope for them. I have hope that in, in some way, either through an action or a conversation, there might be a way to make them more aware or educate them of whatever they are ignorant of. And then it becomes a choice. Now I can either take what I just learned that something is happening disproportionately to a population and that's based in, in, in simple numbers. And I can, I can hold on to these things. I can look at a graph and say, look, that's greater than that thing. And now they can choose to, once, if, if they were ignorant, you show them data, facts. Now they have a choice to make. Either they can dispute it on the basis of some silly argument or say, you know, well, how do you know that, 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 that the data is accurate or that it's not biased? Well, whatever. So let's say it's sanitized. They, they have a choice to make at that stage, whether they want to continue down the path of ignorance and now prejudice, or if they, I don't mean to grandstand here, or they wish to be enlightened and, and perhaps not be prejudiced and, and say, okay, now the veil has been lifted. I, I, I cannot claim ignorance anymore. I know better. Right. So with that type of person, at least the one that has a choice to be better, I think that there's hope. But for someone who's just outright terrible, I don't think that that person, you know, I'm not using salvaged in a religious point of view, but more so in order for me to associate with them, they kind of have to be in the same sort of planet as me. Uh, And I know that that's me narrowing my social circle down very much. But how do you differentiate between, or is that just something you pick up from being a bartender? I've never been a bartender before, but I know that the bartenders that I've met uh, socially or, uh, in my classes, they are very wise people. They're, they're, so how, how do you come up with who's who? I, you know, I, I don't know, but I've like two examples came to my mind Mm -hmm. right off the bat. And, you know, I, hopefully no one that like is related to me will listen to this because I'll probably be upset, but I don't care. But so one of my aunts, my mom, yeah, I won't say which one. There's a few of them, so I'll be vague. One of my aunts and I were having a conversation uh, a few weeks ago. And um, she's actually taking me to Boca to pick up a used chair. That's another thing. We'll have to do a whole segment on how to buy used. Oh, you know, I completely internet. forgot about the, the thrift store thing. Okay, I'm that, that's coming next. Store person. That's so, coming anyways, next. So, um we were having a conversation and she said, 
I, I don't know if we were talking about the BLM or I don't even know what we're talking about. All I know is that she said colored people. And I said, you, you cannot say colored people. It's people of color. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the difference? And she was, you know, a little defensive. And she, well, I said, listen, I said, don't be defensive. You know, she's like, well, what's the difference? Why can't I say colored? I mean, they are they not? I mean, we're white, they're colored. I'm like, stop saying colored, please. And I, and I really tried to explain to her just the semantics of it, you know? And mind you, this is someone, no education, you know what I mean? I mean, she's not a dumb person, mm-hmm. right? But she didn't go on to school and stuff. And so, you know, I had to explain to her the difference, but she was genuinely interested while a little defensive at first, right? Cause I took her off guard and I tried to explain to her the difference and why we say people of color, we don't say colored and, you know, the historical, you know, connection and all that. She was genuinely interested and open to understanding and listening to my explanation so that, hopefully the next time that word pops in her head, she'll realize that she shouldn't say it. I mean, I think that most people, when I say ignorant, I think most people fall into that arena with my aunt. You know, no ill will, no underlying feeling of hatred or prejudice, just real, like a real lack of knowledge and not being around diverse people, right? to teach her these things. I mean, how else are you going to learn? You haven't been, you know what I mean? Versus another aunt's friend who, uh, during the Obama administration, my first time ever meeting her, I was at her home and she used the N word. So I know that these are like very extreme cases But those are real examples from my real life. And I think that in usually in my experience, it's that black and white. It's that clear. Somebody who just doesn't know and somebody who knows full well exactly what they're saying and they want you to to get they want you to know how they feel. I don't know that it's always, you know, obviously it's not always going to be that cut and dry. But for me, I think it usually is. And when I really don't know, I think that with all the negativity in the world, I have to err, like I have to just give people the benefit of the doubt. Otherwise I'd be sad all the time. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I'm wondering how I can get to that stage without bartending first. Well, I'm literally third generation bartender. <laughs> my grandmother, my mom's mom was a bartender. Oh, wow. My mom was a bartender. Like, it's it's weird. It's, uh, well, obviously, bartending now and, like, the whole community is different than it was in, like, the 80s and 90s. Like, that was, like, everybody knew each other. Mm-hmm. And they knew, oh, there's Sue's daughter. Oh, Shauna, Sue's daughter. Oh, Rick. Oh, and everybody knew both of my parents. My stepfather was a bartender. Like, all my parents friends it you know it's it's a whole it's not just it's a lifestyle right it was it was weird growing up as like the you know daughter of like popular parents you go out and like oh 
you know, you know things about people that you don't wish you didn't know. <laughs> so anyway, it was just natural, obviously, when I was 17 to start cocktail waitressing at my, you know, my stepfather's bar. And then, you know, I took like a, a Sunday shift. I wasn't even old enough, I don't think legally to serve alcohol. And I, I learned, I just learned. But of course, you know, I had to have that in. What What's the most pleasant story to come out of your bartending experience? Surprising or otherwise? Or maybe it was something, something that happened or maybe something that someone shared. You know, I do. I had real like, customers, mm-hmm. you know, regulars. They, they. I had a, a baby shower. I had a baby shower at the bar where I'm in hugely pregnant. I mean, I was still bartending when I was 30 weeks pregnant with twins. Wow. Okay, and I was so big that I couldn't reach into the beer cooler. Like you'd lean over and grab something. I had to like shimmy myself down and reach backwards and fumble around until I reached something and hope that I grabbed the right thing. And my, my doctor, I went for a checkup and he was, um, my doctor said, you have to go on bed rest. And I, excuse me, I can't go on bed rest. I literally have a 12 hour shift tonight. And they said, no, 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 you have to lie down and never get up. I had preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. I have to work. I have to work. And they're like, no. And my customers all got together and threw me a baby shower. And I mean, I got, you know, you know, all the typical baby shower stuff. And it was, uh, the bar was split into two and there's a bar in, in North Palm and all the women were over here and they, I mean, they brought food. I mean, typical baby shower stuff. And then all the men, all the male regulars were all sitting around the bar and they had a card and every single one of them signed it and put cash in it. So I think that that was, that was a really good memory. I, you know, they were like family. I mean, really, when you go to a place like that and, you know, there's regulars, you learn a lot. Also, interestingly, one, this is actually really interesting. One of my regular customers and her husband met at our bar. She was pregnant with twins. No, she had just had twins and was pregnant with their daughter. And that's how I knew her. I just knew her from waiting on her and them. And they'd come in every Friday for happy hour or whatever. She wound up being my son's babysitter for uh, two years because I knew she already had twins. So I called her up when my sons were like um, one. Uh, I needed a babysitter. And she said, I'll do it. And she actually wound up being their babysitter. So how funny is that? And then fast forward one of my sons is in band. My son, Damien, plays the tuba. Mm-hmm. And her kids are all in the band, even though they're a few years older than mine. So now we actually run into each other. We're like band moms together. So that's really funny, you know? So I think that there's this idea that like, you know, this seedy neighborhood bar and everybody, you know, it's it's not like that at all. You know, it's a sense of community for a lot of people. 
you know, it's a place that's the only place they socialize and things. So um, I think that's one takeaway, probably. There's a lot of, there's a lot of positivity and sense of community that comes out of a local bar, local establishment. What's the scariest slash funniest thing? I mean, I, I don't want to go into true scary stuff, but scary slash funny story that you can think of. Scary slash funny. Oh my, oh, there's so, I mean. Top there, three, what makes the podium? Well, you said not too scary. Well, sure, maybe and, scary. I don't know why I censored myself. Go go in whichever direction oh, you please. Because the first thing that popped into my mind was seeing a patron smash a bar stool over another person's head, like in the movie. That, that really happens? That and I was the only person working that night. I was the only one there. I was like, uh, 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 uh. and then I didn't know what to do. It was, oh, the crack, the sound of that crack. <laughs> it'll, ever, it'll never leave me. And I thought it was just in something work. like Shameless or a movie or, you know, some TV show like that where it's over dramatized. And but I, I didn't know that that actually happened. No, that re that sincerely really happened. And I called the police because mm -hmm. I didn't know what else to do. And then I got not in trouble, but I was firmly talked to because the guy who smashed the other guy was a regular customer. And I should have known not to call the police on our regular customer. I mean, well, I, I, I don't know how someone can blame you if you're working there by yourself and you don't know that they're a regular. Right. Then how, how, how I, I don't know. I was like a 25-year-old girl. Like, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, there's lots of funny stories. You just watch people hook up throughout the, you know what I mean? You know, people are in the parking lot. You know, it's just, I, there's been a lot. Of, there's been a few scary ones. I mean, I, I worked at a nightclub. Mm -hmm. I, it was a piano bar. I worked at two piano bars that turned in, they both turned into nightclubs. One, I was actually in graduate. Oh, this is funny. So in graduate school, again, remember, I'm not like the other kids in Boca, right? So in, you know, in graduate school, I had to work and I worked at Huge Organs. It's not there anymore. Huge Organs, get it? Huge Organs. And it's a so popular the, gaming name as well. Is it? Ugh. Your, your sons might be familiar with it. Ugh, let's hope not. <laughs> so I was working at Huge Organs, and it was a piano bar until about midnight, and then it turned into a full-fledged nightclub. And it was off Atlantic in, in second. And I worked there, and my colleagues, my fellow classmates, I remember one of them, her dad was like really, really wealthy. Like none of them worked. They were just getting their master's degree, you know, whatever. And then here I was slinging drinks, you know, I was actually a cocktail waitress at this place. Well, part of, if you've ever been to a, a piano bar, we had to dance. We had to learn dance routines, like as part of our job. We'd have to come in on Wednesday at every week. And when they do certain songs, mm -hmm. you have to drop everything, run on stage and do the dance to the song, like the time warp or whatever it is. Like, this is legitimately like, part of my life. Like I had to do these things. So <laughs> it was Halloween. 
Halloween, I'm working. The place is packed. I mean, it was one of those places where you can't, literally can't move. You're holding trays above people's heads. Well, it was Halloween, so I had to dress up. And I was not being very inventive or creative. So I was a cat, of course, right? I got the ears on and I painted a nose and I had a tail. And I'm like going through this crowded nightclub and I'm like slapping people in the face with my tail. All of my classmates come in in a big group from graduate school and they're drunk and they're like pulling my tail. And it was like, (laughs) really, it was like, it's really a low point for me. Um, But reflecting back, I guess that just made me stronger and want to work harder. But so I've had some funny instances like that. where I had to, I was dressed like a cat because I I had to do what I had to do and dancing as a cat in front of my peers. So I asked this of Rhonda, I think off the podcast, she mentioned a while back um, that she had to be, she was working at a bar somewhere in the Northeast. I forget where, but it was one of those summer jobs that she had. And 90 degrees in the shade kind of heat and she had to wear a pilgrim's outfit. Sorry. Sorry, Rhonda. <laughs> so, and she did promise to send me a photo of it. So if there's any embarrassing photos from this time period, I wouldn't share them publicly, but now that you've said it, if, if it's something that you wouldn't mind sharing. I, I'd love to see. You think I took a photo? I have zero photos of oh, that entire Zero. <laughs> nice try, though. I, I, I had to try. It, Rondo's was. I did. Sorry. I'm not. I, I said I kind of wish I did. Mm-hmm. I'm not a picture person. I know that people like love to take pictures. I like to take a picture to show that I was at that place and and mainly just for like an alibi. You know, mm-hmm. if something happens to my ex-husband, I can be like, <laughs> I was in Yosemite, <laughs> right? But really, um, I'm more, I feel distracted by picture taking. Sure. I, I feel like I'm missing something. So anyway, so I don't, I really don't have a lot of, I don't have any pictures of that time. I don't think. Dang it. Yeah. Nice try though. I had to. It, it, it's been great fun to see at least the, the folks that have shared uh, to, to see glimpses into their past. And um, yeah, Rhonda had this thing, bonnet shaped thing on her head and she, you know, uh, she went, and I guess she was living with other college-age students that were having this big party, so she would always have to walk into her home, the, this summer home where she was staying with other students, dressed to the nines as a pilgrim. Uh, I'm going to text her as soon as we're done. <laughs> it's a great photo. If she, I don't think she'll mind sharing with you, but ask her I'm just going to send her a pilgrim. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to send her a picture of a pilgrim and just that, see. That will be very, very random. Them. See if she... See if she can connect the dots. Yeah. All right. So tell me about the, I, I know you sent me an email and it ended with the, the Shauna thrift store or something or the other. Darling thrift store. Yes. Go, please tell me what that's about. And I am very massively interested. What's that about? I am poor as hell. I am, we're the same cohort. So mm-hmm. um, we are all similarly poor. Yeah, really poor, disgustingly poor. 
And so, and I'm a single mom, Mm -hmm. you know, so I'm really, really poor. And so I had, I have to be creative. Even in my current role, I have side hustles, as I know many of my colleagues do. So I have, I'd do anything for money. That sounds terrible. Um, But I'm not, I'm not above working hard and doing what I have to do. I mean, I've painted my aunt's house with a master's degree and a full course load out there painting the roof for a hundred bucks. You know, I I have no shame when it comes to doing what I have to do. And so I was just going, trying to figure out different ways that I could create these side hustles that wouldn't take too much time. certainly wouldn't be too, you know, labor intensive and my best friend's nephew is like, you know, this like stoner kid, you know, whatever. Like he, he's into eBay selling mm-hmm. and he would go on and on about his eBay store. And I'm like, yeah, shut up, you know, whatever. And he was just like, you know, typical, you know, young person, you know, he's stoned like, yeah, I sold a t-shirt for 15 bucks, man. And I, you know, it was free. Blah, blah. And so I, I don't know somehow he convinced me. I was like, okay, you say you make money doing this. I'll just give it a whirl. So in December, I was like, let me just look around the house and see what kind of stuff that could possibly any in any way be valuable. And within three or four months, I, I, I did over a thousand dollars in eBay sales. Wow. So I quickly kind of wait, became hold a on. Dip. So is it just junk that people want to buy or is it, you, you just had all, things of value? Well, okay. I take that back. I apologize. What I mean is, is it stuff that you think is not valuable, but someone on eBay is like, Ooh, I really like that broken cup from the Miami dolphins. Or is it look at this gold chalice from the 1500s? I I don't know. I'm making this stuff up. No. Well, no, I kept my gold chalice, but it's, it's a little bit of both. So for, for instance, so I had like, um, I had like concert memorabilia, Mm -hmm. right. That somebody who's like a hardcore fan, like I'm not a fan of that group at all. In fact, I wasn't even at that damn concert. <laughs> Someone just gave me the shit. So now I'm going to oh, excuse my language. Sorry. Oh, I don't know if you can blurt that out later. Um, so it w- meant nothing to me. And I made 30 bucks on something I got for free. But then I had, for instance, I had a book. Um, of course it was. It was the Waldorf Astoria barkeeping book that okay. was published the, like a, uh, the the year after prohibition ended and I had the original like the and it, it was in my dad's bar in our house and sure. my dad passed away in my first semester so I had my dad's things and I knew it was this old book and it was valuable and when I and, but it was in a like kind of rough shape and when I looked it up some people were selling it for like seven hundred dollars so I knew that that was a little piece of gold. And truthfully, what was I going to do with that book? I had never looked at it. No one had looked at it in 30 years. So I sold it for a couple hundred bucks. And there's someone who's very happy to have my old ass bartending book. You know what I mean? But at the same time, but see, 
it's not just, I had to learn how to go out thrifting to resell. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of trial and error. Mugs. People will spend stupid money on a mug. You have, I found like a Disney mug, like things like Disney, Harley Davidson, like those like iconic brands. You can turn them around so quickly, but I'll find a mug. I found, I actually found a, a, a figment Epcot mug from 1981. Um, I found some strawberry shortcake stuff, you know, from the eighties and you can look at the back and it'll tell you the year sure. and when it's vintage and it's sort of these collectible items, I'll get them for 50 cents to a dollar at the thrift store. I'll turn it on sell it for 35 all day. So it became kind of um, a little addiction. Like in my closet, I have a stack and it just says eBay merch. <laughs> and while I, ha- as I haven't been focusing on my side hustle lately, it's it's lucrative. Like right now, I should be, I don't know, today I'll probably post some Christmas ornaments. People love that too. So that's how it happened. It's um, supplemental income that I really, really need because my salary is so disgustingly low that I can't pay my bills. So is there like a book you read to find out what's valuable and what's not, or is it that you just plug into different or I find that people that do this sort of thing on eBay typically have a niche, like there'll be baseball card resellers or experts, whatever that means. Right. Well, I did have to do some research initially to kind of, I mean, there's like so many, pardon me, Cole, excuse me, sir. <laughs> um, I did have to do some initial research. I mean, there's some very like basic, like what are the top 10 items that sell on eBay, that sort of thing. So I knew to kind of have an idea of what to look for. And then, um, but but most of it has been my gut. So I had this idea of like, oh, well, people collect people. I knew people really like Harley Davidson. It holds its value. So I kind of knew to look for that or Lily Pulitzer, or, you know, I know if I go to Goodwill and gardens, it's going to look like Lily Pulitzer threw up and I'm going to have, you know, a choice selection and, you know, some Karen's going to buy it. So I had that knowledge going into it but my biggest sales my best sales has always been my gut i'll be in like um you know in goodwill and i found this you know a a picture and i sit there and i look at it and it's of a guy with his horse seriously and you know it's a um a lithograph Mm -hmm. and they want like five bucks for it and so it just speaks to me it just speaks to me and i'm like i'm gonna buy this and see what happens well Turns out it's some promotion that Marlboro did, and they only sent it to a select number of people in 1994. And poof, there you have it. Man with horse lithograph Marlboro went for 30 bucks. You're the horse whisperer. <laughs> Sorry, I I just had to say it. <laughs> it's too early for good jokes, so I have to come up with bad ones. Very cool. Yeah, so that's that. This conversation did not go in the direction where I thought it was going to go from where you started. And I'm, I'm very happy about that. You made it oh, seem like... Did you just tell me that my interview sucked at first? I think No, no, no. You, you set such you a low... You, <laughs> you, you set such a low bar at the, at the onset that I thought 
that that it was going to be a very I don't know blah story. I was going to be a crappy. I did not say that. You started by saying it, so I assumed I I drew an inference, a bad one. Okay, I haven't eaten anything. Like, give me a break. I I apologize. But, well, you you set the... Never mind. I'm going to shut up before I put my foot further in my mouth. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm glad that I wasn't as disappointing as you initially thought at 8.30 this morning. (laughs) Okay, in my defense, you chose the time. I did because I knew that my kids would be up until two o'clock in the morning playing video games. And I knew they'd be sleeping right now. And that worked out perfectly (laughs) because there's no children here because they're sleeping. So yes, I just didn't know that I was going to look at my computer last night and it was going to be midnight and I was literally still emailing students. So that was my bad. So I'm sorry okay. it started off a <laughs> little slow. I, I'm only poking, se- semi-poking fun at the fact that you, at the beginning, I forget what you said, and I don't want to misquote you, but you either said that, you know, you, you haven't joined clubs and you haven't, no. you know, done all these things, but th- no. there, there's a whole slew of other things that I, I've never done, and I don't think I've spoken with other people that have. I don't know anyone else that's selling horse lithographs on ebay for <laughs> or dancing like cats on bar stages to sure. the time warp yeah i guess i i, I you know give I yourself that. a little more credit that's what i was trying to get 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 myself to to eventually get you to realize or, or say yeah. out loud so, you know like i said i've been listening to the podcast and it seems like my colleagues do like really phenomenal things so yeah i hope that i i hope that this interview will live up to whatever i don't know whatever standard. well there are none it's just conversations and i'm very happy that i didn't set myself uh, you know this gold standard or some benchmark at the very beginning i i came into this with no expectations whatsoever other than uh a hope for time time to talk with other people and uh yeah outside of that it it's I wouldn't have guessed that you were about to share what you did. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I'm really, I'm wondering, like now, you know, I'm wondering what's going to happen in a couple of hours as I like ruminate about everything that I said. Am I going to be able to sleep tonight? I will tell you what's going to happen. I said those things. I I will tell you exactly what's going to happen because you seem (laughs) like, my significant other who took her MCAT yesterday, a medical school mm-hmm. admission test. Nice. And she walked out. Uh, she's in California right now. We we sent her there so that the kids and I didn't bug her and, and said, go, go stay there. And, and is she going to come back? Yes. She's coming back no, tomorrow. I hope she comes back. Uh, <laughs> But she she left the test and immediately, you know, she's grabbing her stuff from the testing center uh, and then she sends me a text and then I FaceTimed her immediately and she, you know, oh, this section went very well. This section was okay. I didn't get to finish everything. And then the last two sections were good. And I didn't say it, but I've known her for nine years. In fact, on the 12th, three days ago, it was our nine year pseudo anniversary uh, of our Pseudo-dope. first date. Well, we're not married, so it's right. not a, a, a I, I don't know what 
how an anniversary if you spend gets defined. a year voluntarily with another human being that's a legit uh, anniversary so you don't <laughs> all right so it, it was our ninth anniversary of of our first date um and i i've known her to where it, it takes about an hour for her to go into i'm going to be homeless my life is over and i'm freaking out so then it almost on cue and i didn't say anything now i don't gloat about it well <laughs> maybe i do the next day but almost on cue she an hour later i'm freaking out i think i failed i don't think i passed i, I don't you know and, and then it, it'll be these peaks and valleys over the next two days and then she'll kind of come back to herself but yeah you 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 sound uh like you're you're probably gonna go through maybe not that you know tumultuous oh no i will i'll go through that in the next 15 minutes <laughs> like <laughs> I, I don't think you said anything that you know no it's, could be it's, held against you in a court of law sort of thing I, I i think it was a fairly kosher story I, I don't think yeah no i just think that my colleagues would be like oh, i've never talked to her before had no idea she was a cat i don't know <laughs> I, I was going to ask you later for a title but i think i found a title for her for the episode um okay i'm gonna jump into some questions that uh, a colleague suggested um and before i do that how how would uh young mr damien and I've, i don't know if you mentioned your other son's name isaac isaac how would young mr damien and mr isaac describe mom Real answer, not an answer annoying. of exasperation. No, okay. annoying, crazy. I'd say hardworking. They know that I work a lot. And it's probably like, see, they would say that I'm like corny and not funny, mm -hmm. but secretly. Oh, they think you're hilarious. I, I maybe, I think, you know, the truth is, is I'm, we're having a sleepover tonight. One of their school friends is coming over, you know, it's Corona. They can't really go anywhere. And the truth is my kids can't wait for their friends to come sleep at our house because they know that I'm a great cook and they're going to be able to show off to their friends, like look what my mom can do and that sort of thing. So they would say that I'm annoying and stuff, but, uh, you know, the truth is, is that they are really proud of me and they know that the struggle and things, you know, when I got, when I was hired full time, you know, after being an adjunct, I was just an adjunct for four years between, you know, here in BC and I was really struggling and we all danced around and, and ate whipped cream out of the can. That's how we celebrate things. That's our tradition. We squirt whipped cream in our mouths. And, um, so I think underneath it all, I think in reality, they would say that they're proud of me. They see that I work hard. They see they'll do anything for them. But if you ask them, they'd say I'm the most annoying the corniest, embarrassing. They think I'm very embarrassing because I talk to their school friends openly and stuff. And you know, like we were in the hallway, like, hey, isn't that so and so? Hey, isn't that so? Hey, you know, oh, didn't you think that girl was cute? And so, you know, 
typical teenager stuff. But I'm also the mom that takes them to the mall and all their friends and walks 20 feet behind them. And there's no other moms there, but I voluntarily do those things. So I think they appreciate it. Did I answer your question? You did. I, I I was also thinking that you are remarkably similar to Julie, my significant other, that she, that, that that's similar things where I, I think that was one of the reasons why I enjoyed her company so much that she was, um, not, not the typical parent that there, there was this level of freedom with within reach, I guess I should say that, yeah, you want to go to the mall, you want to walk 20 feet ahead, go ahead. Whereas I'm, you know, sitting there freaking out saying, if something happens, what, 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 what's going to happen to me? I I'm the brown bearded guy. I go to Guantanamo. I don't, you know, <laughs> so I'm thinking worst case scenario, uh, whereas she's saying everything's going to be okay. They're, they're good kids. They're, they're just going to the mall. Nothing bad will happen. And yeah. I remember the first time I met the girls, uh, Alexa, the little one was, she was tiny. Uh, I, I think seven. And I remember we were going to watch a movie and she told me to grab her hand. And I, I remember Alexa saying, oh, you're hurting me. Because I, I was so scared right. that I didn't want her to run off into the road. And I said, I've never held a, a seven-year-old's hand in this, you know, kind of protective way in that, you know, we're in the middle of the road, road cars are going here and there. And I remember her saying, just, just relax. Don't, don't freak out so much and, and be cool. So yeah, that's where my head went of, of walking with Alexa, holding her hand and her saying, Al, you're hurting me. Well, there's probably a lot of different things at play too. I mean, I hate to say it, gender probably may play a role. Sure. The fact that I have boys, you know, and the fact that they're twins, they always have each other. Like I know that their friends, moms who, you know, maybe have single children, right. Or their kids have greater gaps in between. So they're, or they appear a little bit more timid to like drop them off places or this or that. I, I pull up to the rapids and literally slow down to five and my kids just roll out and I'm like, don't die. Don't <laughs> drown. If you see your brother drowning flag down the lifeguard and you know, I'll see you guys at seven o'clock. When do they close? Okay. I'll definitely be here, you know, before midnight. And that's because I know that they do have each other and maybe because of their gender, uh, there's probably a lot at play there. Fair enough. All right. I'm, I'm going to jump into some of the questions that got suggested. Um, outside of your kids, uh, what is your greatest accomplishment? Buying this townhouse. I don't know. That sounded so superficial. I really no. That know. that's a biggie. I, I'm thinking that when we bought this apartment, I don't think anything ever put more strain on our relationship or my sleep cycle than buying the apartment that that was i i feel the pain well i was denied first i was denied and then i had to go with a whole new lender and it was oh god it was it's it's really tough mm -hmm. um i know that that's 
oh, this is the thing that's going to keep me up tonight. I don't know. <laughs> there's probably, you know, there's things that I'm proud of. There's things that I've actually, you know what? I will tell you right now, because it just popped into my mind. As a graduate student, remember being let in conditionally, mm-hmm. right? And that was like a stain on me personally, right? I literally, I got a letter saying, we'll let you in conditionally, but you'd better get A's and B's. And if you don't, you know, in six months, we're going to put you out on your butt. And I went from that. So having serious imposter syndrome, I mean, I would shake when I was in class and speak out in these seminars. And I always was like, oh my God, what am I doing here? And I, I mean, I really felt so apprehensive and like I didn't belong or fit in. Like I told you, I'm dressed like a cat. I'm, I'm you know, slinging drinks. These other kids are like At the pedagogy. And I'm like, what's a pedagogy? And so I went from that to being on top of the Boca Bridge Hotel. And I don't know if it's still there, but I had helped a professor put together the Wake Forest academic conference that we actually hosted that year at FAU. And I was his assistant. I was supposed to be helping him with a scholarly journal, but I I was in charge of putting together this whole freaking conference and, and whatever. So... I was at the top of that hotel at the banquet dinner, whatever, afterwards for all the presenters and everybody. And I was sitting at the table and it was beautiful. And I was a little tipsy. I'm actually a lot of tipsy. I'm a real lightweight for a bartender. I can't drink. And I had at the same table with me, two of my favorite professors and four scholars from all around the country who I had just cited in a paper like two months prior and we were all having dinner together. And I thought that that was like super dope. I don't know. Maybe that's like the nerdiest thing, but. For an academic, I I don't know why that, well. It is nerdy, but I was Thomas Goodnight and he like did all this stuff on contemporary rhetoric. And I was just like, I was so excited. I mean, like really. And that night the, the department chair took me aside and said, Shauna, I, I heard that you know, professors were fighting over who was going to get you as their TA. Like there was literally a problem because they were fighting over it. You have such an amazing reputation as a graduate student. And I remember that night I cried on the way home. I mean, probably a little drunk, but I cried because I just thought I'm a high school dropout. I was led in conditionally and now I'm at the top of this hotel with these most amazing academicians being told by the department chair that um, I'm a kick-ass, you know, graduate student. So if I'm being honest, I think that's probably the proud, I've never been so proud of myself. I think that was my greatest accomplishment other than having children because carrying twins is that takes the cake. Yeah, that that's why I had to throw that out there because that becomes the, the for anyone with children that becomes the default answer and then I, 
robs people of the opportunity to say something else. Uh, if you could have one superpower, so you could fly, you could be invisible, superhuman strength, what would you choose? I would time travel. Any particular period or, oh, sure. You're the doctor. Are you a fan of Doctor Who? I am not not a fan of Doctor Who. Does he resonate with me most? Uh, uh. Um, I mean, I loved Quantum Leap when I was a kid. My, it was one of my dad's favorite shows. Did you ever watch Quantum Leap? I haven't. Oh, my God. That's such a good show. That's a really good show. Um, I don't know that I'd necessarily travel. It's, I mean, I wish I could say to you, I would, you know, I would go and stop, you know, I'd go and stop the bullet from hitting Jay, you know, uh, I, when I said that, I thought I really would just like to see my parents. I'd like to be able to travel in time so that I could go back and relive moments, special moments, you know, the moment with, you know, my mom, when she, you know, woke me up because her schedule was so screwed up to go bowling at 12 o'clock in the morning that night that I was eight years old and we're at the bowling alley at 12 in the morning and I was half awake. So I bowled a six. Yes. 10 frames. I bowled a six, you know, or, you know, the night when my ex-husband and I were dating, we had a huge fight and we broke up and I was crying and my dad is, wiping my tears and you know we're having wine and talking about things you know just to go back to those moments uh, or moments when my children were babies because I don't remember I do not remember being them being small it's a blur so um, you know like I said I wish I could say like I'd go back and save the world or whatever but I really wish I could just go back to relive little moments I wouldn't go to the future though I'm too anxious for that. But then wouldn't you know what's happening in the future and, and be able to prepare yourself for it? Dude, I'm not or... going to be able to sleep tonight because I'm going to think of <laughs> something weird in this interview. What would happen if I like see myself, you know, something tragic happening or if I see my sons texting and driving or something that would no, no. Fair enough. Uh, this isn't a question that was suggested, but uh, is there any part of your past that you wish you could change or do you think that all of it is it was there for a reason and it all shaped you to be the person that you well obviously it did but is there any yes. thing I, or yes. period that you would change i have a concrete regret i have one regret in my life okay i did not play sports i know that i would have been a really really good athlete yeah you sound like it <laughs> no, you, 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 you sound as if so, you sound as someone that would relish competition and and not oh. just lay over and be like oh you take the ball or whatever assuming you're playing a sport with a ball uh wait are there sports without balls swimming oh yeah true um but yeah you you seem competitive not obnoxiously so but you seem like you would enjoy healthy competition um, I am obnoxiously competitive. Okay. I just want to, you know, just so you know, I have a scar from a family kickball family, like a family style 
like, oh, come on, kids, everybody's play kickball. And I slid into second on gravel and I had, because I, yeah, no, I'm obnoxiously competitive. But again, my fear and my social anxiety as a kid, my mom actually took me to Lake Lytle you know, when I was a kid to sign me up for softball, like I literally, I have a very vivid, vivid, uh, not imagination, memory, um, a very good memory. And I remember being there and seeing the other kids and I told my mom, nope, nope, nope. Like I cannot do it. I cannot imagine a meeting new kids, but standing up and hitting a ball. Mind you, I made my kids, my kids were played baseball, but, um, I was too scared to do it. And then but I loved PE. I loved, I loved all of it. And then when I was in seventh grade, the gym teacher, she was the coach of the volleyball team and the girls softball team for the school. So she would put me on the teams. I would literally had never tried out for anything. And then I would go to her office and my name would be on the list for the team. And I'd be like, what the hell? She would just put me on. So I always knew that I was naturally athletic but I was too scared to do it. And I know that I would have been a really good athlete. My father was the captain of his wrestling team. He was, he played football and he ran track. And so that is the only regret I have. Have you tried to pick up a sport now or recently, I guess? Yeah. Drifting. Fair enough. I play, I try to play with my kids and I, you know, I, I mainly, I'm I'm more like go to the beach and swim and whatever, but organized sports. I, I thought about joining like an adult kickball league, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe now that I moved and I'm settled, like I seriously went after this Corona crap or whatever, maybe I really will revisit that. Maybe we need a Panther kickball league. (laughs) <laughs> I can see that going in, in, in so many bad directions where people would take out personal grudges under the guise of, of being competitive. And, and maybe that, I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, but I, I think I, it's fine. It's a playground ball. How much damage can you do? <laughs> well, not the, the ball itself, but I, I, I may or may not have been uh, a, a part of a similar game where people pushed into each other violently and yeah, that just popped in my head. It it was supposed to be kickball, but people got pretty rough. All right. Uh, What person from history, either living or dead, would you most like to have a meal or a drink with? And three people, maybe it's a dinner party. If one is hard to choose. Dinner party. Oh, this is or crazy. it could be a, around a, a bar table or no, I'm going with I'm going with Jesus. Oh my okay, so Tupac keeps coming to my mind. I'm so so I mean how do you Jesus think? and Tupac? I think they would both be they would have a wealth of life experience. I, I can see that. I, I can definitely see a very good conversation between Jesus and Tupac. Yeah. I, and I, mean, I don't say that sarcastically either. 
Oh, I hate this because like I who has okay, five people. Question? I mean, someone like super amazing. I oh, living too. Sure. Le- okay, let's let's make this Michelle more fun. Obama. I want to have dinner with Jesus, Tupac Shakur, and Michelle Obama. Doesn't that sound like a solid dinner party? I, I feel, if I may make a suggestion, I think Kanye West needs to be in there. Shut your mouth. <laughs> I think Kanye West needs to be in there. So I'm not hating on Kanye West. <laughs> I am not at all. Um, but, I mean, who would he replace at that table? No, 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 I mean, no. I, I'm just saying person? that, yes. As a fourth person? Yes. I think okay. that you have too much... To too, too much good juju in that in that at that dinner table. I think you need some. Oh, someone to like mark it up a bit. Yes, as a way of like I, I'm thinking, who would Jesus or Tupac or you or Michelle Obama say shut up to? I don't think that hmm. things are going to get out of hand okay. enough to where you know you need some. Okay, then Kanye can go, but he has to wear a MAGA hat, right? I mean, just like <laughs> well, envision the whole thing. Well, yeah, I guess. Or he isn't he running for president? Or was that something I had just read as a joke? Um, no, he, he mentioned was... it, but and, and I'm and I'm and being and being totally serious. As much as we like to make fun of Kanye or whatever, um, and we joke that oh, he's obviously off his meds or whatever. I really do think it's sad that I. I, I mean this sincerely because I think I think Kanye West is a genius. I, I really do. I know people that's going to be controversial, but I mean his music. I think that his music. I think musically, lyrically, there, he has so much genius work. He really does. I don't care what anybody says. I'll argue it to you know his beats, his lyricism. It, he's very very intelligent. Um, but I do think that he struggles with you know mental illness and it goes unchecked or whatever. So as much as we like to make fun of Kanye. I think that he was being serious about trying to run for president because maybe he was having like an episode. And I think that's when people, people as in like people who love him, people who care about him were like, "Ah, okay, let's, you know, but that's just my theory. I think he's low hanging fruit. And I would agree with everything you shared. I I think he's low hanging fruit and he's so out there that it it, it becomes easy to pick on him or make fun of him or use him as the, uh, you know, he's going to come in here and make a fool of himself, candidate. Yeah, but he is an artist. I mean, he sure. truly is an artist, and he is a genius. So there's a certain a certain amount of madness that comes with that. I think. I'd agree. Uh, what's the We're worst? Talking about Kanye. One of my sons just came down. What's the worst thing you've ever done? What's the worst thing that I've ever done? Um, this is such a tough question because there's so many terrible things <laughs> I've done. Worst thing I've ever done. When I was a kid, I squirt Taco Bell hot sauce in my sister's eye intentionally. What is did that she a- do? existed my sister's a pain in the ass always has been um but i'll never forget how bad 
I literally brought it up like a few weeks ago. Like I can't get over it. I remember doing it out of frustration. She was, well, she's six years younger than me. And she was just in, I was responsible for her all the time because again, as a bartender, you know, her, we have different debt. My stepfather's her father. And so they worked all night. So they slept all day. So I was essentially her caretaker all the time. I and mean, even as like children, children, like I was 10 and she was five and I was in charge of her all day. And so I don't know, out of a moment of irritation, I just squirt Taco Bell sauce at her and that was really mean and I feel really bad about it. And I still apologize to this day. And you know what, even though she doesn't remember, she acts like she's very upset about it. still. <laughs> fake outrage. The only thing worse than real mm-hmm. outrage. That's right. All right. Uh, if you had the attention of 500 to a thousand people or however many people you, you, you wish to have in an auditorium, what, would you say to them? It could be advice. It could be a story. It could be a one-liner and then you walk off stage. What would you say to a captive audience? I would definitely talk about facing adversity and pushing through adversity and having suffered so much with the social anxiety and feeling of inadequacies um, throughout my life, it just, I, I would really argue that people should take better care of their own mental health and do celebrate those successes. I mean, you've even had to tell me not to be like self-deprecating in this interview, right? So I think that I would want people, especially young people, to embrace where they come from. There's no shame in it. You know, I used to be very embarrassed when I was a kid that other kids' parents were nurses or school teachers. And I was like, there's kids that weren't allowed to hang out with me because they thought like my, you know, my family was like weird or trashy or whatever. Um, So... I think that that's what I would do. If I could go back and, and and tell myself that and really believe it and say, you know, where you come from definitely doesn't define who you are as a person, care less about whether or not you fit in and what people think and, you know, n- you know, face adversity no matter how hard it is, because in the end, it's definitely worth it, that that would probably be my overarching sort of theme. I'm trying to imagine this. Is this a TED Talk? Is it a a conversation between colleagues? How how do you envision this? Is this uh, talking to other people that have uh, overcome the odds similarly? How in your head are you imagining this? I imagine it. At a morning yoga on the water, everyone's on a paddleboard trying not to fall off. And I'm imparting my wisdom onto them. Dang it. I was At really least that's what popped into my that. head when you said that. Fair enough. I, I've been trying to, are, are you familiar with the last lecture series? Of course. And that's what kind of popped in my mind a little bit. But um, I actually quoted Randy Posh when I was talking to my aunt, when I got denied the loan, within 12 hours, I was already with a new lender. And I actually quoted Posh when he said, you know, brick 
brick walls are there for a reason, mm-hmm. you know, to keep everybody else out or whatever. And, uh, I think in my life, I have definitely experienced that. I think that the GRE was a brick wall and my writing personally, my undergrad professors saying, yo, I need your help getting me into grad school. That was my way of scaling the wall. So, um, yes, I am familiar. I've been trying to start, initiate, do something similar at Palm Beach State where it's not necessarily the last lecture, but uh, basically exactly what you just described, uh, uh, whether it's a a sharing of one's past as a way of inspiring other people, or it, it could be just, hey, I I have this on my desk, so that's why I'm sharing the story. I don't know if you can tell. Uh, how's the light striking it? And it's also the calculator. Re- yes. With your name on it. <laughs> what else am I seeing though? No, I, I don't think that there's anything else to see, but in high school, for whatever reason, my calculus teacher, uh, made a joke that I reminded him of a cowboy in an old Western, even though I, I don't see that. And I don't think anyone else in the history of America has ever seen that. Yeah, that's really weird. But so my, my name is Anurag, and he said anytime I would walk into class, he would howl, Anuroo! And it was weird. And this was my introduction to high school in the United States. 11th grade, I walked in the first day, and he said, Oh, look what we have here, Anuroo! And best teacher I've ever had in my entire life. Yeah, just Just amazing guy. Uh, so he actually, uh, as a way of, um, these things were pretty expensive back in the day. I mean, uh, they still yeah, are. I know. You should have seen when I told my dad that he had to use stripper money to buy me one of those my freshman year of college. He was so, like, what? <laughs> this was, and again, to, to immigrant parents, my, my dad was like, hey, whatever you need for school, I don't care how much it is, go, go buy it. And uh, as a way of not getting these things lost, he used one of these tattoo gun type things to write my name on the back, but instead of writing my actual name, he wrote Anaru. And uh, I guess more random story time. I gave it to a, a friend in grad school who dropped apple juice on it. And then the on key would stick. So every time you would press the on key, you would have to press really hard because the apple juice got coagulated or dried up on the inside. Who in graduate school drinks apple juice? But anyway, that wasn't the the funny part of the story. I said, how would you get apple juice on it? Oh, it was in my backpack. How do you drop apple juice in your backpack while the calculator's inside of it? It was a juice box. <laughs> I was like, yeah, how, like, I already predicted that there was something wrong. All how, the while, how do you story. how do you get mad at someone who's got a juice box in their in their backpack? It's 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 endearing, but at the same time, for the longest time, th- this calculator has just had that sticky on key, and anytime you wanted to use it, it would be this obnoxious, you know, hard press. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, Alexa, who's taking AP Calculus next uh, next year in high school. She was like, so my calculator died. And I said, I I have something that I can give you, but you have to promise to guard it with your life because I still have it from from my high school days and it works just fine. That's so cool. And I read online, I was trying to find, she was like, no, 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 I don't want the the apple juice calculator. So I I read online on how to clean it, brat that she is. Uh, 
you can actually take the whole thing apart, put it in the dishwasher. So I, I, I have a picture. I can send you that. I, I, I took a picture of the whole thing taken apart, stuck the whole thing in the dishwasher, put the, all the individual little hundreds of keys, not hundreds, but tens of keys that are right. on the thing out in a pasta strainer on our uh, apartment balcony so that they could dry out. Put the whole thing back together. This thing works like new. It, it's literally dishwasher clean. I would have been freaking out. I don't think I could have done it. I don't think I could have done it. I was so surprised, but that I think is a testament to how well things were built back in the day that, you know, you could literally put a, a PCB or a circuit board into a dishwasher, run it for a full cycle with soap. And they were like, oh, if you have stuff dried on there, just put a little dishwasher detergent in there. And I thought it was just going to be like with hot water. And they were like, no, 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 just... Do that, dry it out, put it all back together, and it'll work. And I, I turned it on, and to my surprise, everything works just fine. So oh, yeah. I, No, that's true. That's true. I, you actually made me think of... I actually I started dating my ex-husband when I was 15, going on 16 years old, mm -hmm. off and on, you know, whatever. And I washed many of his Super Nintendo 64. Remember the cartridge for the Nintendo? Sure. Um, and like he'd go hang out with his friends and then come home with the cartridges in his pockets and I would throw them in the wash or for whatever reason, you know, even when we were a little bit older, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. And um, he never knew that I washed probably all of them, like regularly. Like I would tell myself, Shauna, make sure you check his pockets for video games. And I would just blow on them, shake them out and they worked fine. <laughs> the wonders of, of good old technology. That's right. It was around this time in the interview that I actually forgot what we were talking about. So there was a long, awkward pause. But I was trying to share a story of me having washed my calculator as an example of something that wasn't terribly poignant, but it might provide for a funny story to be shared with colleagues. What is something that you said you wouldn't share? Or what was something that you thought you said, okay, no, no matter what happens, I'm not talking about this or that? Nothing. Because I know that whenever I make that promise to myself, the literally the opposite occurs. So when was the last time you made that promise and that happened? Um, a campus meeting at the very, very start of COVID, when we all met, like the, literally that Monday when we came back after a week of not, you know, they said we have to teach, or no, that Monday, you know, like Friday, they said, we're gonna close. And then Monday we all came in for meetings and they're like, here's what we're gonna do. And I told myself like, you know, just stay calm. Everything's gonna be great. You'll figure it out. And as they were talking more and more about like, you know, the expectations, I started freaking out more and more and more and more. And, you know, of course, raised my hand and, and I even became like a little emotional when I was talking because I was so stressed. Every time, every, every time I go to a faculty meeting, I literally have to tell myself, okay, Shauna, don't say any weird shit. And then inevitably my hand goes up and I say something off the wall. It's just, I can't help it. So what is it about the faculty meetings or, or meetings, I guess, in general, that makes you feel that you shouldn't say something? 
I would imagine that your whatever you're sharing, if it is something that's making you emotional, it's probably on other people's minds as well. So why do you feel that you have to censor yourself or not say what you're thinking? Not that I have to censor myself. It's like, why do I have to be the spokesperson? Well, someone why has to be. I designate myself as the spokesperson? I do it. That's what I do. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can't, it's like, I can't help myself. I'm the shy introvert who can't not raise their hand and say weird things. It's, it doesn't make any sense. Wasn't that Oscar Wilde? I don't know. I, I think he was the shy introvert who, who or uh, to pick a contemporary, I think John Stewart is a, is a self-professed introvert who loves doing stand-up comedy. Dave Chappelle. Uh, if are you a fan of Dave Chappelle or Stewart? How well, how can you first of all, if you're not a fan of Dave Chappelle, why would you ever be invited to do a podcast? I don't know, but I I, I while I asked that question, I also realized that you're a speech communications professor, and then I realized how dumb that, that question was. The whole that, thing is contradictory. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry for asking stupid questions, um, <laughs> but. In his Mark Twain acceptance, Mark Twain Prize acceptance speech, I think it was a couple of months ago. It was this year for sure, uh, at the Kennedy Center. He walked on stage smoking, and he said, "Smoking is not allowed indoors." But what are they going to do? Kick me off on my night? And then he he went on to say that you know, uh, it, it was a something that his mom used to tell him that sometimes you have to be the lion. Or you have to pretend to be the lion so that you can really be the lamb that you really are. Or you can, I messed yeah. that up. He, I, I, he does it much better. Right. Uh, and I, I think that him and, and John Stewart are exemplars of people that would rather keep to themselves. But because they have things of value to say and because they see the world in, I think, in a completely different way than than common old me. They They, they, they have special lenses that they can keep swapping in and out and say, oh, inequity, diversity, racism. Let, let's put on all these glasses and, and come up with something very poignant. Uh, I think for the most part, they're very both very private people. They both live on farms. This is weird that there's so much intersection in their lives or how they choose to live it. That is weird. Um, they both are huge animal rescue advocates. But at the same time, the, the things that they say are things that other people need them to say, to, to advocate for uh, the 9-11 first responders. I, I right. think John Stewart had a huge role to play You're with right. that. Yeah. Uh, That's interesting. So I think that there's value there. Why do you think that, well, why do you shy away from it? Why not, why not embrace it whole hog and, and say, I'm going to... I don't know what you would do or say, but why not? What in your head says I shouldn't speak out and then you end up raising your hand anyways? Why is that a bad thing? I, don't, I just feel compelled because I feel, I, I think I do feel like I think differently than other people sometimes. Or I, I don't, I don't know. I really don't know because when I do it, I'm very nervous. I mean, adrenaline, like, you know, sure. I can feel it on the inside. I don't want to do it, but I don't know. There's a, well, there's a risk. There's a risk involved in raising your hand and everyone looking at you and you potentially saying something that could offend somebody. 
and there's no risk at all in just sitting there and being quiet. Ooh, I would push back very heavily. But but okay. you could argue that there's greater risk in just being a passive recipient of information and not being involved. So I don't know. I don't know. I just do it. I do it. And then I stress about it and, and, and shake like a chihuahua for a couple of days and go, wow, was it really that weird? Was I really that weird? I was a little extra. Was I a little extra? I think I was a little extra. And then I turn around and do the same thing the next time. Do you find uh, peace or contentment in having done it? Do you, do you feel better for having done it? It means no. whenever you do do this, do, do you uh, do you ever reach the point of equilibrium where you're at peace with the decision that that needed to happen and I'm glad I did it, even though it didn't make me feel good at the moment while I was undergoing that? No, I think the only equilibrium is ever that's just not fresh in my mind anymore, so I forget about it. And then if I think about it in like six months, I'll cringe and then I'll just forget about it again. Isn't that terrible? I think just not thinking well, it, about it's... it is fine. A goldfish popped I, in I'm my head. Growing it, it, I'm still growing to do. still growing. The ethical goldfish popped in my head. The, the, the goldfish that's, you know, got a bad memory, but is also scared and paranoid. And goldfishes seem to be, you know, you tap on the glass and they freak out. Right. But the ethical goldfish stands up for the little guy and, and forgets that they did that. But in your case, it's, well, I, I was trying to figure well, out why you. Gardens campus a couple years ago when we had a whole panel of, um, you know, legislators and I don't forget who the hell was there. The people were coming. I don't remember who was there, but it was a whole panel and um, it was, it was on mental health and student mm -hmm. mental health. And there was students who were waiting, you know, at the microphones to speak. And these, led, you know, whoever it was, I don't remember who the hell they, you know, they were politicians or community leaders, whoever. And they were like sitting there campaigning and they were really pissing me off because they weren't really answering the students' questions. They were just feeding this crap. And, you know, students, I was watching the students stand there for 20, 30 minutes waiting to ask a question and they weren't even being acknowledged. And um, then they wanted to end it. And I was so angry that this one girl had been standing there that I jumped and she was scared to talk. And so I jumped up there like a jerk and was like, blah, 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 this student. And I like pushed her in front of the microphone and everyone's looking at me. And then it's like, I can't help myself, right? It's like, sometimes I'm waiting for John Kenyotis to jump out. You know, John Kenyotis was mm -hmm. like, what would you do? Yep. And like, sometimes in my life and I'm like, where, John? And it's like, no, it's just me being crazy. And so in those moments, I do, I feel so compelled to just make whatever this is right. But then I'll stress about it. Like I was really anxious the entire day. Like, God, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I did it in front of students, faculty. But you don't find peace. You don't find, I keep using the word peace, happiness, contentment, whatever emotion you want to choose, the positive side, in knowing that you gave the young lady an example of what she should do in the future for other people that are being ignored or maybe set a better example for the other people in attendance who, who saw this happen 
and and perhaps looked at it and said, ah, c'est la vie. Or, you know, they looked at it and they said, I really should say something, but didn't, weren't the people that raised their hand. You don't think that that's setting a better example for them or maybe a good example of, hey, when you... That certainly makes me feel better than what goes on in my mind, thinking that people are like, well, there's crazy ass Shauna again, you know? (laughs) All right, fair enough. Anyway. Well, thank you again. I, I know I, I was on my last question and I took more time, but uh, thank you again for being so generous with your time. And I, I hope to do this again. If I run out of, well, when I run out of people to annoy, I, I might start doing, I probably will have to start doing a second round of updates and uh, perhaps more cats will be present. Um, my son could only hope so. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me, and I will send you. So you want questions for the next person, Please. right? Yes, if you don't mind. And, yeah, and I'm gonna send you. I know, I know some people you should be talking to. Please do. I, I've reached out to people at other campuses, and, and, and maybe it's out of we have no idea who this guy is. Why? Why is he emailing me? And that's been the response from from a lot of people. Like, who are you? Well, I, why and i think not having a good enough reason or you know because it's not being published in time magazine or something i think people are are wondering why i would just out of the blue start doing this and it's like i I really wish i had a better answer than i woke up one day and i was like huh why not why why not do this that's right i think Uh, it's super cool i really appreciate you inviting me today you're welcome all right take care have a nice day Bye-bye. Bye. Until next time, for another 78 times, take care.